Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss essential topics about the art and culture of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Gianangeli. Andiamo avanti. Welcome back, everyone. I'm real excited to be recording today, especially because we've had a little bit of a delay due to us moving or relocating from our cozy Columbus, Ohio abode and moving out to Massachusetts so that I can do further graduate studies in art history. And I'm very, very excited about that because what that means is I'm going to get to amplify the, I suppose, intensity, knowledge, and um, what, what I bring to this podcast to try to give you guys the most accurate historical interpretation of the Renaissance that I possibly can. I'm going to be honing those skills and crafting them into something better for um, you guys, for myself, for the future, right? So because I'm in transit, I don't have my books, I don't have my handy resources, and I thought this is a good opportunity for me to just kind of do what I've I've noticed a lot of you guys enjoy and ramble a little bit, complain a little bit, and tell some really interesting stories about my experience in being a student of, of the Renaissance. I think it makes the most sense to just give you guys a little bit of details as to how I got into this field, what that process was like, and what it's like to come into Renaissance studies as a novice and then develop into more of a professional. I went to Florida State University and I was pursuing an undergraduate degree in French and Italian studies, and I really did think French was um, French language was, was my passion until I was taking more and more Italian courses, Italian language courses, Italian literature courses, and, and, and realizing that these, these sort of medieval and Renaissance works were really compelling. And I always found myself writing about the artwork that surrounded them. I was very, very fortunate to um, take out a very fat loan <laughs> to attend Florida State University's Florence campus. At this time, I didn't, I didn't necessarily know that art history was, was my path. Um, it was uh, one semester in Florence, and one of the electives was the Florentine Renaissance. And when I read the course description that it was taught mostly on site, and that was true, um, I thought, okay, how can you resist the temptation to stand in front of some of the greatest known artworks in the world with a professional every week to tell you about these works. This was under Professor Linda Reynolds, who is without a doubt one of the greatest influences uh, in my life, her and the director of the program, Frank Nero. And given that um, a lot of my listeners probably and hopefully have found this through the Florida State University Florence channels, knowing each other and and uh, Director Nero was polite enough to share this for all of you. I think we we may know some of the same people, and if you don't, then I, I would say you're you're really missing out. In any case, this really changed my uh, my concept about what I was studying. And then you, you come to this point where you where you think, okay, well, art history that's that's not entirely practical, or or you have every every voice in the world that tells you to to get a a, a degree that you can use. Well, you, you can use degrees in humanities. Uh, let me tell you that for all of you pressured into your business degrees or what have you. Um, 
but in any case, I went back to Florida State University, and I'm sincerely focused on um, finishing my degree in, in, in as many Italian credits as I could, particularly uh, art history or biblical studies, religious studies, mythology, this sort of thing, which all informs Renaissance art, right? You need to know about what about the Bible. You need to be able to recognize biblical terms. You need to be able to recognize Greek myths. And um, so I, I focused on that entirely. When I graduated, though, I decided I wanted to go back to Florence. I wanted to go work for FSU Florence, so I applied to be a program assistant, and that is a very, very interesting job. And they did take me, and I went back at first for, for eight months. And what that involves is living with the students, managing the students, and basically being the, I guess, an RA, but also an RA in the streets of Rome when you go on an excursion or at one o'clock in the morning when one of them drinks too much and you have to go to the hospital. Very interesting and fun job, but I also found direct mentorship there under Nero, under Professor Reynolds, so that um, outside of being a direct student, I was able to take their courses. I was able to study under them, learn from them uh, a great deal. Because really, guys, you cannot beat seeing artwork in person. You cannot beat experiencing artwork in the both the space that it's meant to be in, but also how we reimagine it in gallery space, which is art in of itself, right? When I came back to the United States, visa was up, went back to Florence to work again, I ended up being the assistant to Professor Reynolds' um, Florentine Renaissance course, and she was so gracious enough to give me the opportunity to actually lecture in some of these spaces. And that was a groundbreaking moment where you're speaking in front of Michelangelo's Bacchus. You guys have heard me talk about that because I love that sculpture so much, but also because I've, I've been fortunate enough to speak to art, art history students about it in front of it and demonstrate its visual capacity. I'll explain that probably in a future episode when I cover it because I will cover it. But also you know, medieval manuscripts and San Marco in Florence. That was another talk I gave for Professor Linda Reynolds. And also, if you guys remember the episode that we did on the fundamentals of Renaissance painting, I took a lot of that directly from a talk that I gave to business students for a fantastic poet and Professor Mary Jane Riles in Florence, who goes from FSU to Florence in the summers. And I was there in the summer, right? So what I knew was that art history, art education was the the way I was going. And I did apply all over for these sorts of things, but ended up uh, pursuing Italian studies at Ohio State University under the misconception that I could do there what I did in my undergraduate studying that was study Italian art. That wasn't really the case. I was able to take graduate electives in the art history department, and of course I only did courses on Renaissance and medieval art. Um, however, this is the kind of partially the segue I want to go into, because like I said, I want this episode to focus primarily on the modern state of Renaissance art, how we, how we engage it modernly. And that starts at the gallery, right? I have to say, and if, if you guys follow the Instagram, you saw a post that I made regarding the crowds in some of these places. There is a very weird and strange culture of what I call 
checklist art viewing. And that is these people come in masses. And mind you guys, I think art tourism is. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Renaissance people. If you are enjoying the Italian Renaissance podcast, I have good news. We're now active on Patreon. You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources, information, and artworks. Better yet, those who join the Renaissance Master or Renaissance Patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month. My goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. How do I say this? It's important. People need to to see these things, but the way and the etiquette around art viewing is really, really messed up. And what I mean is your selfie with the Primavera does not supersede the the group of students learning about it. Does that make sense? I don't want to I don't want to claim some kind of like elite ownership over gallery space, but sometimes what happens when you have um these mass tourist areas and having been to so many galleries, especially in the United States where it's not populated, like the like the National Gallery in Washington, I could move. I could I didn't have to wait in line. I I walked in. Um the Uffizi has an hour wait usually <laughs> during high season. And you're shoulder to shoulder with hot, sweaty people who, frankly, don't typically know what's in there. And I don't think that means they should be denied it. But what I think is maybe if you've just had that really delicious uh, prosciutto panino with some awful smelling cheese... Maybe don't breathe it directly up my nostrils while we're waiting in line or while I'm trying to look at Michelangelo's Donitondo. I don't want to smell your lunch and I don't want to feel your sweaty body. But this is the experience that so many people have in Florence. And I think that has to do with this this really kind of uh, corrosive type of art tourism that doesn't promote the student. It doesn't promote the art historian. It doesn't promote the person who really has stakes in art viewership. And I want to repeat again, I don't think you have to have stakes in art viewership, right? But Florence has recognized this problem, and they've started to do this tourist redistribution process where they're moving art out to the smaller towns around Florence so that this traffic is is lessened, right? Though I do question the value of this. If you've never heard of the Venus of Urbino before you've looked at your Florence art checklist, do you really need to go crowd in front of it with your cell phone and take a picture of her masturbating? Right? What is your photo's value when there are high-resolution 
professional available photos of these works online. The, uh, I'm at a loss here. Not because I didn't just post a picture with me and my boyfriend in the Cleveland Museum of Art. I did that. I'm guilty. Um, but look at that photo. There's really not that many people in there. There's breathing room, time to uh, take in the art, and then time to, um, if you want photos. I think gallery spaces are gorgeous. I think they are photogenic. I think you should. But maybe don't elbow me in the temple, because I'm standing when I'm standing there explaining <laughs> to students, say... Uh, palace and the centaur which is one of my favorite things to talk about uh, your photo your terrible half-ass photo of it is not worth elbowing someone in the head and raising your stinky garlic armpits okay <laughs> i'm sorry guys it, it just it is there's this horrible obnoxiousness to art tourism that what i'm saying to People, maybe someone listening to this to this podcast who might be in Florence, who might be in Rome or Venice or National Gallery, anywhere, a- any type of, of, of space where, where this is information that you want, I'm not saying don't go. I'm not saying don't enjoy it. I'm not saying just because you don't know about it that you shouldn't get to see it. What I'm saying is be considerate to the people around you and what their objectives are. And I think I think there is a hierarchy. I think there are. I think students, in my opinion, maybe because I'm an educator, take precedence over everything. Your tourist checklist does not mean you can step in front of a group of students. Wait your turn. Don't interrupt the professor and ask them to explain it to you again. You're not in that class. Okay. <laughs> if you want to take an art class, go take one. Don't butt in on a professor teaching a course. In any case, these are experiences I've continually dealt with. Um, over and over and over again. And you can kind of see it in people's eyes. They're intrigued by what you're saying. You can listen. You're welcome to listen. I hope you learn something. Don't raise your hand. You're not a student here. Okay? This is in... Uh, I think that's something that's going to happen every time. I think even even when I go out with just my friends or my partner and we're in a gallery and I'm talking about things, um, people like to wiggle on over. That's a little less uh a less formal situation i'm happy to talk to you about about works especially because i get animated and i'm sure i get loud and in this sort of thing in any case you know take a bath or shower before you go wash your teeth <laughs> wash your teeth before you go don't take a selfie don't interrupt a professor don't think you belong to a tour group you didn't pay for okay Read up about it before you go. I think that's a good idea. Listen to podcasts while you're viewing. I think that's a good idea. Uh, it's there for all of us. Not that it originally was, but this is, um, in my opinion, in Italy. I want to talk about these major Renaissance institutes in Italy. This is what happens, right? Especially in Rome is another really, really bad one, the Vatican. I took a poll on our Instagram, and I saw that a large majority of you guys actually have been to the Uffizi, have been to the Vatican, so you probably know what I'm talking about. Or it was your armpit I was smelling, and that's okay, because I appreciate your listenership. But the Vatican, um, you saw my photo of the Sistine Chapel. And what's worse is if I go in the Sistine Chapel with friends, family, I've been there 
I don't know, a half dozen times. I don't know how many times, but um, with with students, with friends, with family, um, and if I want to do any explanation of the work, these mean men come around and they, they tell you, you can't explain the art. You have to look and move on um, because they want you to have paid for the, the Vatican guide or because they think you are some kind of unofficial guide when really you're just talking to your friends and family. Um, so it's obnoxious. The first time I was actually in the Sistine Chapel, they kicked me out because they say no photo, and they mean no photo. And I was 16, so give me some credit here. But there was a man, I don't know how to explain him. He wore like an Inspector Gadget trench trench coat, and he had this massive camera. And I mean, I don't know, some kind of gigantic like 1800s camera thing that was obnoxious and loud and I remember think of that photo I posted we're crowded like that and he's running around just it's making this noise and I have this small little digital camera tiny as can be and I have it down by my waist in my fanny pack yes my fanny pack I was a tourist and I aimed it up Sure enough, they got me, and they scooped me up, and they kicked me out. Isn't that horrible? I I deserved it. I remember I was walking out. It was me. It was my friend, and then my, my I went with my high school, so my teacher at the time, and she says, "You know, come on, I'll go out with you guys. We'll go get something to eat." And as they're escorting us out, they're saying, "You know, non parlo no inglese, non parlo no spagnolo, non parlo parlo no italiano." Like they all, oh, they apparently they don't understand the words no photo and they were mocking us we deserved it we did deserve it i think that's true um in any case yeah got kicked out of the sistine chapel for the obnoxious photo taking um even though the whole time you're in the vatican you're getting shuffled along like cattle you really can't stop and appreciate anything because there's always you know millions of people going through there um for good reason for good reason, but I don't think you can mitigate the the flow in the Vatican the way you can in the Uffizi because it's not as big, it's not as populated, right? And people just come in, in droves, absurd droves, um, with their garlic breath, with their stinky armpits, with their arms raised, taking photos of things um, and putting them in your face, right? Um, it's 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 not pretty. It's not pretty, guys. And then there's the churches, these spaces where a lot of times the art is preserved in its original context, and that is the best thing you can do to appreciate it, to, to see an altarpiece, to see a fresco, to see a chapel um, in the original context, where it was, where it was meant to be. And churches typically, not like Santa Maria Novella in Florence or St. Peter's in Rome or San Marco in Venice, all these major cathedrals are going to be like the galleries. Um, but if you wind up in some obscure church, R Rome has uh, gorgeous paintings by Caravaggio in a dozen churches that people just aren't there looking at them in their original content. They're just not there. And that is really what I would urge you guys to, to attempt to do. Um, just keep in mind there is etiquette that that you have to 
abide by. You can't go into a church with your knees and shoulders out. Um, you cannot take flash photography. You can't be talking loud, right? One of my favorite things about a lot of churches um, that have that are on the tourist itinerary but not so trafficked, or even trafficked, they have this automatic noise feature. And it's really funny because if the collective audio goes above a certain level, the loudest and obnoxious, like, silencio, per favore. And it's, it comes over the intercom and it really scares the hell out of you because it is so loud that you think, okay, well, isn't this defeating the purpose of silence? If you're silence warning is louder than the noise in the room enough to scare people i don't know it cracks me up in any case also the getting to view an original context the gallery denies you that right um and that can we've talked about fundamentals of painting optical compensation do we remember that where the artist will um paint the proportions differently depending on where it's going to be or sculpt it differently depending on where it's going to be right Michelangelo's David is out of context. That's why his head looks so big, right? Um, so in a gallery space, you're not going to get that. So sometimes you'll look at figures and you'll think, well, this master painter, what is? why is this neck so long? Why is this head so big? Why are those hands so large? Did they not know proper anatomy? Oh, they knew it, and they knew it well, and they knew how to do it if you were viewing it from the proper angle and a lot of times professors in galleries or or, or tour tour guides in galleries can show you uh, the proper viewing position and if you have a really good professor you'll find a whole class sometimes laying on the floor in front of a a painting so that they can imagine it's higher up on the wall where it would have been in its original context so these are things to consider when you're looking at artwork inside of galleries and you know, even bringing students in, I don't want to put them on some elevated level of, of benevolence. I've seen some students do weird, weird things in galleries. You know, they've drank the night before, they're ready to barf. They've One, I had a student, nightmare, a real nightmare student. And, and part of me just hopes, sorry guys, I'm going to let some of my cynicism out here. Part of me hopes she, she, she's listening to this so I can, so I can tell her myself how stupid she is because i couldn't do that then i had to be polite but i watched her we were, we were in the palazzo strozzi which is a gorgeous gorgeous palace in florence with a rotating exhibit they always have something new they always have something interesting i think right now it's the donatello exhibit we were there for um a contemporary chinese artist i can't remember his name i'm sorry i don't do contemporary chinese art but we were there for that um and she ran her finger along a painting hanging on the wall and it didn't have any sensors on it i don't know why it didn't have any sensors on it they they should be idiot proofed but they're not and sure enough i i wanted to slap her i'm gonna be frank like her hand i don't want to hurt anybody i want to be like get your damn hand off of that painting you moron you know who you are if you're listening to this so these things happen these things happen yeah everywhere for some reason people want to touch and they don't need to be touching they don't even need to be breathing on them around them let alone touching them with their greasy you know panini fingers we come back to the panini all the time here 
because that's what people eat a lot of times before they come to the galleries because you can smell it on them. In any case, I digress with my 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 lamentation over the panini eating gallery dweller. And I want to move in to what happened um, when I jumped into graduate studies at Ohio State University and was mingling. You know, I was part of the French and Italian department on what we called the Italian side, studying Italian language and literature, but also um, doing all my research on art, on Italian art, and taking courses with the graduate department of art history. And there I encountered some very um, interesting perspectives about the Renaissance. And we've talked about this when we try to define what the Renaissance is and that the modern state of it is in question. People, you will find this in academic circles. You'll find articles on it, opinionated professors about it. Did the Renaissance happen? I am of the thought that, yeah, of course it did. But um, a lot of, particularly medievalists, I think there's a a weird pressure for medievalists to... um, combat or debate the renaissance because of course the middle ages has this uh, stigma of being the dark ages this period of a thousand years where nothing of importance happened or nothing of significance for human development happened or this thousand years of complete and total religious control and dogma might have been that but that nothing beautiful was created that nothing uh, literarily prominent was written. All of that is not true. The Middle Ages flourished in art, flourished in literature, flourished in cultural innovation. The only thing is that changed in the Renaissance, and there's a, a tendency for some medievalists to imply that if you study the Renaissance, um, you're not really studying anything that actually <laughs> took place that was different than what was happening in the Middle Ages which is wholly false. The cultural shifts in the Renaissance are extremely notable, documented, and easy, once you have a trained eye for it, to tell apart from their medieval counterparts. But as we saw, we talked about Dante, we talked about the Guidos, we talked about the Troubadours in the 11, 12, and 1300s, which is the High Middle Ages. Absolutely, certainly, plenty of things were flourishing in the Middle Ages. Renaissance scholars don't deny that. Let me give you an example of what I mean, because I don't know if I'm telling this clearly. I was in a medieval monasticism course, and in this situation, I hope he's not listening. The student, she can listen. This professor, no thanks. He w- He's a, a medieval art scholar, and we were studying this sculpture from a German cathedral. I don't remember what it was, but... Um, the, the the theme, the topic was materiality, actual physical material building art, and we were tr- analyzing the work to try to figure out um, what material elements it had, and the draperies on this were perfect, gorgeous, actually, and if you remember Fundamentals of Renaissance Painting, we talked about drapery studies, we talked about the need for the Renaissance artist to depict things as they were realistically and naturally. So drapery studies became a major focus of the Renaissance, and frankly, if you couldn't do 
draperies, you um, probably were not among the, the prominent artists because by the end of the Renaissance, um, it changes again, but drapery studies are typically perfected. So um, my guess in this course, when he asked, you know, what do you think are the material elements of this sculpture? It was a virgin and child. So it was the enthroned um, Virgin Mary. And I, I noted um, that I thought the draperies were done in a cast, like they cast the draperies in some sort of material in order to render them lifelike. And my argument was because that wasn't perfected until the Renaissance. This, I'm not going to lie, this dude snapped. Like, I've never been talked to like this in a, in a college course before. And he just goes, that's a Renaissance lie. A Renaissance lie. That's what he called it. Meaning, he's under the impression that our general, the general consensus about the Renaissance and facts about art historical development could, can be considered lies. Not like, oh, what he should have said was, oh, actually some artists in the Middle Ages were concerned with drapery studies and did them properly. That's an adequate answer. Um, and that's true, because more or less most of the things that we see happening in the Renaissance happened somewhere minutely in during the Middle Ages. The main difference is they were not major universal cultural movements. So just because, excuse me, just because this one artist nailed the drapery study and took it seriously and did it well in this cathedral for this sculpture does not mean that everyone was doing it and not everyone does it in the renaissance too but what i'm saying is just because it happened in the middle ages doesn't mean you can discredit it as a major movement in the renaissance or a major i don't know skill that you have to demonstrate in the same with linear perspective yes there were medieval artists using uh, perspective trying to scale their figures trying to to make more realistic um, landscaping and, and, and all this. Yes, some did that occasionally. Everyone didn't do it. It was not a staple of medieval art because the Middle Ages wasn't concerned with creating things naturally, realistically. We've talked about this, right? The idea of trying to do that, we talked about for Dante, trying to emulate nature is too godlike, right? You cannot, um, it's, it's hubris to try to achieve that level of creation, okay? I don't think the value in analyzing the Renaissance comes from how it exceeds or does better than the Middle Ages. I think the the value of it comes from, again, not discrediting the Middle Ages. And I think medieval scholars need to, to embrace that philosophy um, and not scorn their Renaissance uh, counterparts in the vein of trying to defend the Middle Ages, which frankly, doesn't need defending, in my opinion. Other elements of contemporary Renaissance scholarship a lot of times falls on collections. Why is art where it is? How is it there? And how does that change our interpretation or how we view art? Again, coming back to gallery space, um, but likewise, the role of diverse or uh, minority groups during the Renaissance who were frankly uh, more or less silenced by patriarchal structures. Where are these voices? Where are these artists that are black or women or 
not really, I wouldn't say like LGBT type problems because mainly because all the, the greatest artists that we've talked about have been on that spectrum in some variety. They, it, it's not, um, it's just different. It's, you can't talk about, I don't know, it's difficult to talk about things like non-binary gender identity and Renaissance artists. They're not, the language doesn't even exist in the period to talk about that in that way. You can apply like queer theory, this general umbrella term, to people like Michelangelo or Donatello, like we have, but it doesn't really fit. Um, same with like feminism doesn't necessarily fit in the same way. I've heard the term proto-feminist thrown around. I don't know how I feel about that exactly. The role of women was different. How they subverted those roles are different than modern day feminism. Can we call it proto-feminist? I don't know. I don't know about that. But in any case, the modern situation is to try to uncover these these paintings and cover these works. Um, not that there aren't really, really well-known females from the Renaissance period, and even the Middle Ages, but uncovering those that were silenced. That's the trick. The art that is stored away without a name attached to it because the research hasn't been done yet. That is the current scope of Renaissance art studies, in addition to other things. Um, my, one of my major research uh, pieces, I suppose, is nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with the Emperor John VIII Paleologus and Dracula, to be fair, to, <laughs> which is a, a fun a fun little nod to um, Vlad, Vlad Tepes of Romania. So that's a work in progress. We're still identifying figures in paintings. We're still trying to sort this out. It's not all solved, is what I mean to say. There's questions that are still unanswered. There's documents that are still in red. There are paintings that are still improperly analyzed, and there is a lot of work to do. When I was preparing that lecture for the Bacchus in the Bargello Museum in Florence, I was using the Florissant University Library to get all the information that I possibly could. I found this book that talked about it heavily um, that was published, and I think it was 1968. So, you know, a relatively old book, but in terms of like scholarly and academic publications, not too, too old. But in any case, um, they had the patron wrong. They had a lot of information about the, the work wrong. And so we need to make sure that we are double checking our resources, double checking the scholar who wrote it. And of course, what's happened between, you know, 1970 and now. What, like I said, what documents haven't been read and what have now been read that change how we interpret patronage, production, or even, you know, authorship. I think this is a good place to stop. I hope you guys have enjoyed my lamentations on the current state of Renaissance art and history. I am hoping that this wasn't too cynical or too too terrible to listen to. I do want to reiterate that I believe firmly that art should be accessible to everyone, it, not just an elite group. Um, just I want to also remind us to have our our brains. Uh, geared towards an etiquette in gallery spaces. 
There is one more thing I wanted to mention. Was in the I'll never forget this. The Uffizi Gallery did this fun thing where they recorded uh, the rooms with the biggest masterpieces in it, and the last room in the gallery they displayed video of everyone on their phones taking selfies, taking photos, and some people, believe it or not, will raise their camera, will take a picture of something, and then will never look at it with their actual eyes, and they'll walk on. And they captured all of these moments, and I'll never forget, uh, you know, to reflect. They want you to see yourself in this in this kind of mocking exhibit in the last room to, you know, put the phone down, appreciate the art, look at it with your eyes. There were people in there on their phones taking pictures of the videos. They didn't get it. They, the message wasn't delivered. They didn't understand, right? Not that I think that you sh- shouldn't be able to use your phone if you want occasionally or to say, oh my gosh, you know, this is this marvelous masterpiece that I've always wanted to see in my life. Don't take a picture, though, of every painting in every room or whatever it is you're doing. What are you going to do with those? Show your friends that you saw it? Good for you. You know, you enjoy the the, the, the process of viewing a gallery and taking in all that beauty and history rather than trying to save that into your cell phone. There's a million pictures of the birth, birth of Venus. Yours isn't important, okay? So if I haven't uh, scared you off, if you don't think I'm a total uh, dirtbag for my for my lamentations, um, please, please, please uh, get on to your Apple podcast, get on to Spotify, give the show a rating, um, write a review, please. Follow the Instagram. I post a lot on there, and I'd love to see more of you guys there engaging. I ask questions that inform the future episodes that I'm going to do, and I love that engagement, and I love that feedback. So thank you guys so much for listening and tuning in. Next time, like I said, I'm still moving uh, to Massachusetts, so um, I'm going to try to, I still won't have my books in two weeks, but um, I'm going to try to to do a more history-based lesson, or maybe we'll analyze a work of art. I'm not there yet, but, but we'll figure it out. So thanks again, and arrivederci.